Welcome to the Sugar Science Podcast. Our mission is to highlight and connect researchers in the type 1 diabetes space. I'm Monica Wesley, your host for today's podcast. And today I have the distinct pleasure with speaking with Dr. David Wraith. He's the professor of immunology at the University of Birmingham and the director of um, this Institute of Immunology and Immunotherapy at University of Birmingham. He's also the CSO of Apitope. Welcome, David. Thank you very much, Monica. It's a great pleasure to be here. I think um, you have had, or uh, we spoke a little bit off the record, that you've had a, a long career and um, a sort of a deep understanding in this space of immunotherapy. And uh, most recently, you've uh, we've published extensively, but most recently you've published uh, chromatin priming renders T-cell tolerance associated genes sensitive to activation below the signaling threshold for immune response genes. I'd like to talk a little bit about that paper. I thought mm-hmm. it was really great. Um, you know, can you introduce our audience to sort of the, the high notes of the paper? Well, the, the, the interesting uh, point about that paper is trying to understand how this sort of negative feedback mechanism um, that we knew about in T cells, how this functions. So we've known for a long time from uh, studies of uh, parasitology, chronic bacterial infections, even virus infections, that often um, the, the immune system will adapt so that the host can live with the infectious agent. And it does this by um, a sort of negative feedback mechanism, because essentially when you have infections like listeria, um, even mycobacterial infections, sometimes the immune system will work so hard to get rid of the infection that it will do more damage to the host than the infection itself right yeah that and this sense. damage this damage is what we call immune pathology so <clears throat> the immune system has evolved this sort of negative feedback mechanism whereby uh, the t cells that are driving this inflammatory response to the infection actually shut down the genes expressing uh, inflammatory cytokines, etc. And the cells begin to look like the cells you will find inside of tumors, tumor infiltrating lymphocytes. They upregulate inhibitory receptors like PD-1, CTLA-4, TIM-3, TIGIT, LAG-3. And they shut down the inflammatory cytokines like gamma interferon, IL-17. And then they switch on a really important cytokine called IL-10. And IL-10 really does dampen down inflammation. Now, we're interested in this phenomenon because although these cells had been studied in chronic infection, we'd noticed that when we were um, 
setting up this antigen-specific immunotherapy approach using T-cell epitopes from self-antigens, we noted that the same negative feedback mechanism applied. And that's why we, we were really struggling to understand how this worked. How can the same peptide initially start promoting an inflammatory response? Yeah. And then when given in soluble form, why do these peptides then switch off that inflammatory response? And why do cells start making these inhibitory receptors? Why do they switch to interleukin-10 production? And the fascinating thing about the study we did was to look at the epigenetics. These are changes in the genes around the expressed genes that can be inherited from one cell to the daughter cell and onwards. Yeah. And what we found was the genes for, if you like, the tolerance associated uh, signature of genes became epigenetically primed. And that, that means that um, a segment of chromatin close by the gene opens up and binds a set of transcription factors that makes the rest of the gene accessible to low levels of transcription factors. And this means that when you effectively tone down the signaling machinery, in the cell by upregulating those inhibitory receptors, you end up with a, a partial membrane proximal block in cell signaling, but there's still sufficient transcription factors being made to drive off these epigenetically primed genes. So it's really a novel mechanism. Yeah. for understanding how negative feedback regulation works. It's really a subtle, you know, shift in a way. And, and uh, it's much more, you know, it's sort of in line with thinking about, um, you know, an, uh, an orchestral playing of this system, right? Rather than sort of like a one to the next to a you know, dot to dot thing. Yeah. Well, it's like almost a sort of, changing the the key of the the symphony yeah. and retuning the orchestra to play in a different way right mm -hmm. so that's a very nice analogy i'll use that <laughs> <laughs> okay i thought the um you know the paper was really beautifully done and um you've got a number of uh you know collaborators on here um mm -hmm. most of them are from university of birmingham but then you've got some um a collaborator here from icon uh, school of medicine at mount sinai in new york and mm -hmm. so that's great that you guys are collaborating uh globally here i mm -hmm. you know always mm -hmm. celebrate that and mm -hmm. um i just wondered how that 
collaboration came about? Well, Graham, the uh, collaborator at um, Mount Sinai is really an expert in imaging. And so he was the, the guy who, who really pinned down the membrane proximal block um, by showing that the signaling machinery in the so-called tolerized T cells uh, is, is defective. Um, so the immune synapse, which normally drives off the T cell, it, 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 it forms in a different way. It, it's, it's actually very interesting because when you look at this in, in slightly more detail, and when you make movies of uh, um, green fluorescent signaling proteins, you can see them going into the immune synapse. And as Graham showed in the, um, uh, the non-tolerant, the Th1, the effector cell, you get this stable immune synapse where molecules like ZAP70, LAT, PKC theta, move into the synapse and stay there mm. and signal off, right? But in the tolerant cells, that doesn't happen. You get this very transient movement of those molecules into the immune synapse, and then the synapse falls apart. And for that reason, you end up with very attenuated T cell signaling. It's hmm. fascinating. I wondered, um, you know, this paper is really pointed towards um, therapy for multiple sclerosis. But of course, you know, we're very interested in type 1 diabetes, um, sure. an autoimmune disease. And mm -hmm. I wondered, you know, if you uh, see sort of, you know, this paradigm applying to other diseases outside of multiple sclerosis, or can you even say something like that? Yeah, yeah. Well, we have um, done clinical trials, as you you know from the Apatope website, in multiple sclerosis and Graves' disease. But the point is that the peptides that we use, the, the, the so-called Apatopes, have to be specially designed. So Apatopes are so-called because they are T-cell Apatopes, but they function in an antigen processing independent manner. And if you think of the first three letters of antigen processing independent, they are API. So an apitope is an antigen processing independent T cell epitope, right? Yeah. What's important about that? Well, the really exciting thing is that of course, um, if you look in the immune system, in most people don't develop autoimmune disease, right? Right. And probably the pivotal cells that are required for maintaining tolerance in the body are dendritic cells. Because they're the yeah. clever guys that distinguish between self 
protein, self-antigens, and foreign proteins, right? Mm -hmm. And this is largely thanks to the work of Charlie Janeway and colleagues who, who discovered, of course, the famous toll-like receptors that respond to the presence of infectious agents, etc. So you find that, in fact, as Ralph Steinman from New York showed at Rockefeller, that steady-state dendritic cells induce tolerance, right? Yeah. And Ralph even showed that if you target antigens to those steady-state dendritic cells, you will induce tolerance. Now, what's the big difference between steady-state dendritic cells and mature dendritic cells? The steady-state dendritic cells have very low levels of the incredibly important co-stimulatory molecules required to drive effector T cells. Mm -hmm. right? The other important thing about those immature steady-state dendritic cells is that they have a relatively high pH in their endosomes. Hmm. And they don't actually, the machinery for loading class 2 MHC isn't very effective in those cells. And that is because they have an iron pump in the endosomes and lysosomes that is missing a subunit. And this is the work of Ira Melman, uh, who's at Genentech. Yeah, I know Ira. Yep, there you go. <laughs> so it's a small world. And I'm brilliant, brilliant science, actually. If you go back to a paper I think he had in science, that really changed how how we understand um, dendritic cell function. Now, the important thing about this, Monica, is that because the endosomes are relatively high pH or relatively alkaline pH, the whole machinery in the endosomes doesn't work very well. So the proteases that degrade the proteins. The HLA-DM, that's the peptide editor for loading the MHC, getting shot of the um, invariant chain and the clip peptides and all of that stuff. And the loading of those MHC molecules in the endosomes is just very inefficient. So there was another Boston group, uh, Larry Stern and Lara Sant'Ambrosio, who were at Harvard, showed that in fact, if you look at the class 2 MHC on these immature steady state dendritic cells, the MHC class 2 is unstable, right? Yeah. And in fact, Lara published a paper saying 
the class two MHC was empty. Hmm. And I had a long chat with R. Melman about this, and I think we agreed that it's highly unlikely that the MHC is empty, but it is peptide receptive, right? Hmm. So the secret is we design our peptides to bind directly to that peptide receptive MHC. And by doing that, our peptides selectively seek out and bind steady state dendritic cells. Hmm. And those yeah, that's cells, very clever. Yep. And those cells then induce tolerance. Yeah, I love so, I love this um, I love this approach. I think it's I think it's really really interesting, and I feel that it has been um, it hasn't gotten maybe hasn't gotten the press it deserves. Not yet, no. Mm. Um, and I mean, I think you know I I am doing a lot of writing at the moment, trying to explain this in terms that people will understand because it been it has been very difficult for people to 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 really get their head around how one t cell epitope in one setting can cause disease but in another can switch it off right mm -hmm. it's contextual yeah now in truth if you think about it there's nothing novel about this at all because, you know, this is what people have been doing in the field of allergy for over a hundred years. Yeah. It's just, you know, when people tried to use antigens for desensitization of autoimmune diseases, it didn't work, right? Or they found it made it even worse. So actually, what we've done is quietly worked away at understanding the sort of nuts and bolts of peripheral tolerance and then have found a way of tapping into that with our appetites so i think it i mean it, it's it's a very very exciting approach yeah it is quite exciting i wondered I wanted to circle back just before we go forward and talk more a little uh, about Apitope is, you know, just uh, yesterday, Amelia Lineman, um, you know, put out a really interesting paper, pancreatic beta cell autophagy is impaired in type one diabetes. Mm -hmm. And so in the, uh, you know, sort of in the context of that paper, basically she goes through and talks about autophagy and macrophagy, right? And really what they saw was that, um, the, you know, what, what is uh, teleolysosomes and the teleolysosomes or these lupofuscin bodies, they're increased in the auto antibody positive human patients. Um, you know, these are people who are destined to move forward to type one diabetes. If they get more antibodies, you know, usually they are. And teleolysosomes are positively correlated with aging in the beta cell. Um, oxidative stress and inhibition of lysosomal enzymes are associated with increase of tele telolysosomes and iron could may accumulate within lysosomes as a com uh, component of this lipofusion. So it's really mm -hmm. interesting that you said earlier that 
mm -hmm. right? That in this, um, in these, you know, dendritic cells, they have a high pH in the endosome. And it just got mm -hmm. me thinking, wow, is this a global effect that maybe these, maybe this is some kind of lysosomal, you know, or endosomal dysfunction? Well, it, it is interesting because, of course, you know, there's people like Amor Yananaway who've always thought um, that there was some sort of defect in um, thymic selection of the T-cell repertoire in type 1 diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe this is something to to think about whether this is a, a, a mechanism uh, that if, you know, if the T-cell repertoire is being altered by such fundamental mechanisms, then that may sort of lay, um, you know, this group of people more open to um, autoimmune conditions. But the counter to that is it, if, if, the, if this was a mechanism that was so general, why selectively type 1 diabetes? Why don't they get something like Graves' disease or myasthenia gravis or rheumatoid arthritis or something else? Right. Why is it type 1 diabetes? So, yeah, but interesting. Yeah, it's interesting. I'm speaking with her ne uh, next week, so I'll I'll dig in there more. Um, so right. let's shift gears for a minute. So T1D, mm -hmm. right? Type one diabetes is strongly associated with HLA uh, DR3 and DR4, and your work mm -hmm. has focused on the HLA DR3 transgenic mice mm -hmm. to design these epitopes, which are the mm -hmm. antigen processing independent epitopes mm -hmm. derived from the TSHR to treat Graves' mm -hmm. disease. Can you talk about uh, a little bit about how this approach might be used in designing a, a T1D focused experiment? Yeah. Well, the truth is we are looking at um peptides in type 1 diabetes because you know as you know there have been some sort of peptide based um therapeutic studies done um most recently by colleagues at ucb in the uk mm -hmm. uh, with mark peakman and colleagues from king's in london now the peptides that they designed, um, you know, nobody's ever proved whether or not they function as apitopes. So we have gone back to the drawing board and have designed or are designing apitopes from um, islet antigens. We have some already. Um, and, you know, we're in discussion with various funding agencies currently about starting some human studies. So it's, um, it's getting quite exciting. Now, when we did our screen, we looked at about 50 type 1, uh, 50 people with type 1 diabetes in, in the Birmingham clinic. And they were virtually all DR4. Mm. Okay. So 
Um, what we have done is used the same approach that you've read about for Graves' disease to design peptides from um, uh, islet antigens. So we are doing it, um, but using rather than BR3 transgenics, we're using a lot of human culture systems and um, DR4 transgenic mice. And right. so when you go to, you know, identify these people, um, is there any kind of criteria how long they've had type one? You know, do they, are they, do they have multiple autoantigens or just one or does it, does it matter? It doesn't really matter. Um, I mean, obviously, I think the point is that you want to start treatment as early as possible. Um, and, you know, this, this, this is why I think our experience to date with peptides in uh, the four clinical trials we've done in MS and Graves' disease are actually really important. Because the, the, the most important point is that as it stands today, we have not seen any unexpected safety signals from any of those studies. That's excellent news. So, so you know, my argument is that if peptides are designed the correct way and um, administered in the correct way, there is no reason why they shouldn't be completely safe, right? So, I mean, one would hope, I think, that if we can begin to identify people and even children uh, who are predisposed to type 1 diabetes, and possibly, if you want to be really certain, showing the first sign of autoimmunity through appearance of that first autoantibody. Usually GAD, or yeah, I think usually GAD is the first. Usually GAD, yeah. But you could start treating at that point, right? Yeah, JDRF now mm -hmm. has a, a new initiative where they're encouraging the general public in the US to get tested for uh, autoantibodies. Mm. It's kind mm. of interesting. I mean, they have a, you know, they'll supply you this test kit. I think it's like $45 and they're trying to, I think they're trying to cast a wide net to see who's out there with yeah. autoantibody. Yeah. 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 Well, we would want to do the same, but with um, combining um, a gene screen, because you probably know my colleague John Todd yeah. in Oxford, um, and John and I, you see, used to share a bench or a lab in Stanford, so we know each other very well. Nice. Um, so yeah, at the time he was mapping the HLA genes um, in type one diabetes. And I was beginning <clears throat> to do the first studies on peptide-induced tolerance. 
So it goes back a long way, Monica. And so using John's um, gene screen, I mean, he can pick up with about sort of 90% certainty people who are predisposed to type 1 diabetes. And if you combine that with appearance of the first autoantibody, you're pretty, you're pretty certain. Yeah. So I think if we had evidence that our peptides could be, be administered, for, for example, in adults with type 1 diabetes and were completely safe, then I would argue that it would be sensible to start treating um, youngsters with the first signs of type 1 diabetes and really stop the disease in its tracks. Yeah. Uh, I heard uh, recently, you know, I heard a conference, um, where I believe, I think it was David Harlan was talking about the fact that what kind of immune system <clears throat> does sort of a halfway job, basically, you know, 40 years post-diagnosis, some people can still, uh, some people with type one diabetes still have, you know, uh, he said 14% of the beta cells functioning and and so I guess one question would be, if you can provide these epitopes or apitopes to adults who have the disease, could you perhaps, uh, I don't know, call off the dogs enough to gain some functionality back or even, well, you know? Yeah, I mean, colleagues, Way back in the in the old days in Cambridge, there were colleagues working on um, stem cells for islet regeneration, and I think the you know the belief is that there are stem cells there, and if you could shut down the fire, you would let them grow and you know come back to some extent. Um, but even if you could just control. The disease and make it, you know, more reliable. Um, you know, make the treatment more reliable. That would make a big, big difference. Yeah, agreed. Um, there's a lot, there's a lot of moving parts to address for sure. Yeah. Um, I wondered, you know, what's uh, in terms of Apitope. You know, uh, you know, you shared sort of the vision and the mission of Apitope to date. But I mean, what a um, what kind of um, timeline do you have for clinical trials that are addressed um, to type 1 diabetes and, you know, what's ahead? Yeah, so we're hoping to embark on, um, you know, the, the, the sort of essential experimental medicine studies. Um, that would give you the confidence to go into clinical trials. Um, and we're hoping to um, start those this year. And, you know, as we're defining the, the apotopes, um, as those follow through, we would really intend to get to a point of 
starting clinical trials really as soon as possible within the next couple of years. Um, and then, you know, since you have I, had... I, I, need, I need to move quickly, Monica, because I'm getting old. <laughs> uh, agreed, same here. Um, yeah, I said that uh, that's actually why I, I started this initiative. You know, my daughter's had type 1 diabetes for seven years. She still has it, and I'm not getting any younger. So there's nothing to lose here. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah, I, I I appreciate that. I appreciate your um, dedication to this, um, you know, this disease. Well, actually, to the whole science, the the science behind many of these uh, mm-hmm. diseases. Mm-hmm. But um, I and I, I hope that this will continue to move forward. Do you have collaborations? Are you primarily based in England? Are you open to collaborations with others? Um, you know, are you? Or are you collaborating with? Oh, I've, I've always been. I've always been super keen to collaborate with as many people as possible. Um, and I mean, I think, you know, it's been interesting in this last year. We've done an awful lot of work because um, part of my institute is a clinical immunology laboratory, um, and we're sort of pretty well known for designing, you know, new tests and things for um, cancers and infectious diseases and so on, and putting those into the clinical arena. And, um, you know, there's a company, a couple of companies in, that have spun out of um, our laboratory. So this last year, you know, we set ourselves the task of designing some really good antibody tests for coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And seeing all of the activity in our institute, um, you know, coming together to work on this, has just been absolutely stunning. Yeah, it's um, very inspirational. And it, it gives further, I think, um, it gives more, you know, credibility to the idea that uh, when scientists really come together, multidisciplinary scientists yeah. uh, to solve a question, that science can accelerate, and that's exactly what we're right. talking about. Right, and it's almost a, you know, an example of, okay, we were all there before. This problem wasn't there before, and the only thing that stopped us from designing vaccines, designing tests, and designing, you know, antibody tests and things was money. Mm. And if governments want a solution, you know, all they have to do is produce the money and we can do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, it, and I think, you know, I, I, I feel the same way about, um type one and other autoimmune conditions that you know given the backing and given the right people we could move this along really quickly i agree i feel like it i do feel that there um there needs to be a global coming together of some of the biggest minds in this 
uh, field and also with, uh, you know, the young scientists that they still have their hands wet. They're at the laboratory. They're using the new techniques. And I mean, if we can uh, create some kind of platform where they can communicate in a robust manner, I think it could really fuel things. So that's what we're hoping for. Um, I think I'm very excited to watch what happens at Apatope. And I think that, um, you know, you've got a really interesting system there uh, mm. and, and something that could really give some legs to, to um, the next set of clinical trials. So I think, um, you know, focused on type one. So I'm really excited to watch how you guys evolve. And um, certainly our, our audience will be very interested uh, to listen to this and, and follow as well. So thank you so much great. for talking to us today, David. It's been a great pleasure, Monica. And I hope to see you again, yes. if not face to face. We, we will. We'll, we'll circle back. <laughs>